So Jeff Loveness, for those of you who do not know who this is, he was the writer for Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, and uh, there was a lot of confidence that Marvel gave him. And specifically, before Quantumania had even come out yet, all the trades, Hollywood Reporter, Deadline, they already got the jump and the scoop that he was going to be writing Avengers of King Dynasty. So at that time, that gave me confidence in Quantumania. Now, I like Quantumania. It's, I don't hate it like a lot of people do. Um, I enjoy it for what it was. There are certainly some issues, and I'm, I'm actually going to talk about some of them shortly. Uh, but getting back to the, to, the, to the main topic, he was supposed to write the next Avengers film, which is uh, Avengers the Kang Dynasty. And apparently, according to Jeff Snyder, that is no longer happening. So I'm going to read an article here. Uh, this comes from Game Rants. And it says, quote, the Ankler reporter and below the line editor Jeff Schneider, who has heard Loveness is no longer writing the Avengers of the Kang Dynasty. According to Snyder, Loveness' departure has nothing to do with the ongoing writer strike as he exited Avengers of the Kang Dynasty before the labor dispute. During an appearance on the hot mic, Snyder clarified that this news was unconfirmed. However, according to his sources, it sounds like they're going in another direction. A couple of things I want to address right off the bat. It says here that Loveness' departure has nothing to do with the uh, writer's strike. He exited before the labor dispute. That's making it sound like he left. And that certainly is possible. But I don't think that's the case at all here. I think Marvel, rightfully so, they saw the, the reception. They saw the poor performance box office-wise from Quantumania. And the majority of people think it's a very bad film. And you know what? I can understand why. And there are certainly some things that I agree with in terms of some of the criticisms regarding the visual effects and some other things. So it was not a hit. And I understand that not everybody is perfect. Even some of the best filmmakers and writers in the world have had some, you know... Some cold farts, so to speak. <laughs> it's, 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 it's happened to the best of them. But Marvel has this trend, and it has worked before. It worked with the Russo brothers. It worked with the writers of Infinity War and Endgame with Marcus and McFeely. It has worked before, but Marvel has this trend of hiring writers and filmmakers that have very few projects on their resume. Um, and just overall, very little experience. And we are talking about movies that have hundreds of millions of dollars on the line. Not only that, they're representing a brand that up until the last couple of years, because there's been a lot of divisiveness and a lot of controversy, this is a brand that has that has developed a very prestige reputation for their consistency. But that narrative and that conversation is starting to switch, whether you agree with that or not that that's just the case at the moment. I don't feel the same about phase four. Like a lot of people do. I, I didn't expect phase four to be this, you know, to, to be phase three. We were coming off of a peak with Avengers Endgame. We were going to slow down. We were going to push pause and reset before getting back into the thick of it. We weren't going to get quantum mania as the first film. And when I say quantum mania, I mean, in terms of setting up the next, you know, era of Marvel with Kang and, and with the multiverse. I knew it was going to take time, just like it took time with the first 
couple of phases to to inevitably signal to the audience that okay we're we're building towards Thanos. But anyways, where am I getting? Let's 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 get back to the point here. So Jeff Loveness has written something. He's 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 a former writer for Rick and Morty. Uh, I think he, I think he was like a, like an intern for, for like talk shows and, 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 and the Oscar presentations and, and things like that. I, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, don't, you know, don't uh, quote me on that, but overall, as I mentioned, very limited experience. And so you have to, you know, if you're Marvel, you look at what happened with Quantumania and if you look at his writing itself, um, it wasn't amazing. But I didn't mind it, but it wasn't amazing. And I'm not saying you should expect amazing for every project, but if you want to stay consistent to the brand of the MCU, I think there is an expectation to to uh, to aim as high as you possibly can. And that means hiring good, qualified, proven writers it's okay to take a risk every once in a while, but especially when it comes to the Avengers films, once again, I am acknowledging that it has been done before with Marcus and McFeely and the Russo brothers. That is a rare case, and even to their credit, they weren't necessarily as known or mainstream, but they had still done a lot of TV, had done some feature film work, so they had something under their belt. I don't think Jeff Loveness has written a feature film. I think... Quantumania was his first feature film, and I will say to his credit for someone writing their their first movie, like he did a he did a good job. But I watched Quantumania for the fourth time a few days ago because, as I'm sure a lot of you know, it's on Disney Plus. And uh, you know, when you watch a film from the comfort of your home, it's a very different environment, uh, obviously compared to being in the theaters. And so I was more aware of a lot of the things that were happening in the film. Um, and, and, you know, what do I mean by that? I, I mean that I've seen the film several times now and, and I've, I've, I've watched reviews. I've, I've heard a lot of other people's analysis of it. So all of that has kind of just sat in my brain, not that I'm letting it influence how I feel, but it's making me more aware of some of these issues that a lot of people have, whether I agree with them or not. So when I was watching this film again, I did notice a problem with the dialogue, and I'm not some, you know, film school professor, writer. I'm not even a great writer myself, to be quite frank with you. I've written a few feature films, but I'm not on Jeff Loveness's level. I'm just speaking from the critical perspective, uh, from that hat, from that point of view, and there there certainly is a, is a problem with the dialogue, especially between the scenes with Hope, and I, I really noticed it between the scenes with Hope and and Janet Van Dyme, and uh, and Hank as well. Hank felt, this time around, almost like an entirely different version of that character from what we had seen uh, in the first two Ant-Man films. He was a lot more kind of hip, relaxed. It's almost like he took an edible before, you know, b- b- before we saw him in the film. Like, I, I, there was something different about him, and that, once again... There's 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 some different elements, of course, but a lot of that has to do with the writing, and in uh, in in the direction and even the performance. But I don't really give a lot of the uh, shame to the performance because this is Michael Douglas here. This guy is one of the one of the greats. So I I really dispose a lot of that that criticism towards the writing. 
don't get me wrong, it wasn't all bad. I think I think one of one of the highlights, one of the great things about Quantum Mania was how Jeff Loveness wrote Kang. I thought all the scenes with Kang were were were, were some of the best actually in a very long time. In, in fact, the scene in Quantum Mania where Kang uh and well, excuse me, when Kang sends Modok to go and fetch Cassie and Scott and then you know, Cassie and Scott are sitting in the Citadel, and then it's it's the first interaction between Scott and Ant-Man, and Kang is trying to negotiate and trying, well, it, at first it, it appears like a negotiation, but he's pretty much just demanding that Scott helps him. That scene is one of the best scenes, Mar- like, be- best scenes in a Marvel movie since probably No Way Home. And I know I'm, I'm going way off the bender because I've just been, I, I've, I've been talking about how how bad the movie is in certain areas but if there's one silver lining that specific scene if i had to like pick apart some of my favorite scenes in marvel that scene is up there i love that scene and that performance from jonathan majors i know he has a lot of his issues going on i'm just speaking specifically about the the art that scene between him and scott was amazing i loved it so that is one of the one of the few highlights that i that i will give to Jeff Loveness. <clears throat> One person could also argue that Marvel is known to be very involved with the production and, and with the writing and the directing. Marvel's been accused of not letting their directors and their writers have a lot of authority over their vision. And, and we've heard people say Marvel films are made by committee and so on and so forth. And... Uh, I don't think that's not I don't think that's necessarily not true. I just think that it comes down to the confidence in the filmmaker and I think maybe Feige has had a little more confidence in other filmmakers uh in specific filmmakers than others. I think he I think he gave a lot of authority to filmmakers like, you know, Chloe Zhao with Eternals cuz she she had just won an Oscar. Uh I think he gave a lot of authority and a lot of pull to Sam Raimi. Um but maybe not as much authority with with uh, maybe Destin Daniel Cretton, you know, on, on Shang-Chi. Because, once again, I think he had very limited filmmaking experience. I know he had some experience with, uh, um, excuse me, with, uh, what's that show called? Bob's Burgers. But now, I actually, a little side note, I think he's going to give a, a lot more authority to Destin Daniel Cretton now with Avengers of King Dynasty because now he's proven that this is a filmmaker I can indeed work with. Uh, because, you know, Shang-Chi, a lot of people love Shang-Chi. I thought it was good. I, to be honest, I kind of feel the same about Shang-Chi as I do with Quantumania. I think they're both good films, but I don't love them, and they're not top-tier Marvel. I just think that they're good. I enjoy them. 6.57-ish range out of 10. That's sort of how I feel about them. I know a lot of people love Shang-Chi, and similar to Quantumania, there are some things I do love about it. I think the fight choreography is great. I just think some things, specifically how the character Shang-Chi was written, I actually don't think he was very interesting of a person to be quite honest with you uh, i thought his father that character um w- was a lot more compelling and was a lot more memorable for me so yeah um but getting back to this whole thing is this the right move to fire jeff loveness i think it all depends on who they get next if they get a if the, if the next writer they get 
to take on the Kang Dynasty is another one of these writers who's never written a feature film or, or, or just has very little to no experience, then I think you're not moving forward. You're just moving backwards. So I think if they are going to get rid of Jeff Loveness, who does have potential, and who knows what Kang, what the Kang Dynasty could have been like with him as the writer still. It could have been great or it could have been terrible. We don't really know. But all signs are pointing to a lot of concern. So now that you've gotten rid of him, I think Kevin Feige, I don't know if it has to do with money. Maybe, maybe they're just... They don't want to give a lot of money to these writers, which I mean probably has something to do with what's going on with the writer strike. But I think that you need to, which once again, pending on the writer strike, once that gets resolved, spend the money, spend pay the premium price for a proven successful writer. I'm not saying you have to get Aaron Sorkin, not that he would even want to do a Marvel film anyways. He seems like one of those guys that doesn't think it's 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 cinema. You don't have to get a writer like that, but 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 get a writer that maybe has already worked in the comic book, you know, genre before or 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 has a passion for it, but find somebody or at least a look for people that are proven writers. Otherwise, why what was the point of getting rid of Jeff Loveness? If you're just going to get another writer that has little to no experience, you, you shouldn't have fired him in the first place because you're moving backwards. So those are my thoughts on that. We have quite a few other topics to go over, but I think getting rid of Jeff Loveness can be the right move. But will I say, is it the right move right now? I'm not so sure. It There are pros and cons. I, I, I'm, I'm kind of on the fence about it, to be quite honest with you, because as I mentioned, there are things about quantum mania. Like I, my mind is changing as I'm talking about it. Like on one hand, I understand Quantumania made, I think, under $500 million. Budget was probably around two or three with marketing. Plus, you know, the theater chains getting their money. So the film barely made a profit. If not, it might have lost money. Who knows? I'm, I'm not the, you know, I'm not a financial guru. I didn't, I don't, I don't know the exact numbers behind, you know, how, how the margins get split between the theaters and, and, and the film and then the marketing and so on. But the movie did bad. Now, you know, Guardians did great, and that that's that's good for the brand. That's good moving forward to have positive conversation. And then we have San Diego Comic Con right around the corner, and I'm sure Kevin Feige is going to probably announce some more things, maybe even by then, because uh, they're they're very um, they're uh, they're very deep into shooting Captain America: New World Order. So maybe even by then. In July, they can even have some kind of little teaser, uh, probably not for the public, but mostly for the people in attendance, I imagine. So I think the future is definitely bright, and um, and I'm sure things are all going to work themselves out, but I think it really just depends on, like, this is a conversation we're going to have to revisit in the future, and it all depends on which writer they end up getting. Now, this also had me thinking about the writer for Avengers Secret Wars. And if you don't know who that is, that is Michael Waldron. Michael Waldron is very close friends with Jeff Loveness and has sort of a, a similar resume to Jeff Loveness, former Rick and Morty writer, uh, and then written some little things here and there. But I don't think he had any feature film experience before he wrote 
Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, which, yes, you wrote that in case you didn't know. Which apparently that film went through tons of rewrites. A lot of story changes. But I didn't mind Multiverse of Madness. I do think it's a better film than Quantumania. Uh, but, but, here's the but. He wrote Loki. And to me, I think Loki is one of the best things that Marvel has done. So I'm a, I'm a, I'm a lot more confident in him writing Secret Wars than I am with Jeff Loveness writing Quant or, uh, writing the Kang Dynasty because him writing Loki was very important. He had a he had a huge responsibility because that show in Phase Four because there was everything was kind of scattered. You know, Kevin Feige said Phase Four was the opportunity to introduce and reintroduce characters. So, but that project was was probably the only one that gave us the audience an idea of where we could be going with this next saga and that's a lot of responsibility and I think Michael Waldron did a fantastic job in writing that show and how he wrote you know uh, obviously the six episode which is one of my favorite episodes of Marvel television uh when we when we meet he who remains and everything else so you, you, the uh, the TVA and, and and all of that so great job there good job with multiverse of madness but now you have to ask yourself is his job at stake i would say it's it's possible um but i i i'm probably leaning towards it. he's 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 going to keep that film but who knows and a lot of this has to depend on the writer strike because now that if this is true and Jeff Loveness is gone because it it is you know they did state that it's a rumor i think it's probably true now the challenge is that cuz they they can't look for a new writer because of the writer strike so you know i'm sure Kevin Feige and you know his other uh, his other executives are probably talking about who they'd like to go after but they can't make any phone calls. They can't make any. Uh, they can't have any, you know, conversations with the representation or anything like that. They got to wait for this writer strike to get revolved. So this could this could push the Kang Dynasty by another year or so. I mean, I I was assuming the film was going to get delayed anyways, just because I, when they announced last year that Quanta or I keep wanting to say Quantum Media when they announced at Comic Con last year that the Kang Dynasty and Secret Wars were going to come out. Not only in the same year, but in 2025, I was like, there's no fucking way. That is way too close. You still have all these other films that you haven't even talked about in Phase 6. Like, you're going to have to, uh, like, start now. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that probably means that the King Dynasty and then, as a domino effect, Secret Wars are both probably going to get moved by another year. If not, maybe even two. Like, I wouldn't be surprised when it's all said and done. If we don't get Secret Wars till 2028... And then Kang Dynasty till like 2027, just to be quite honest with you. And you know what? I, it sucks, but at the same time, I think I think it's for the best because it gives the writers, it gives Marvel time to just kind of breathe and navigate how can they reset. And there's also a lot, a lot of other things happening. Obviously, we have Jonathan Majors. You know, I'm sure they're probably talking and 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 brainstorming contingency plans to see what they're going to do in in the event that they have to recast him if he is proven guilty. So there's a lot on the line. Uh, this could be a blessing in disguise. It, it's 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 very dependent on who they get to replace him. But anyways, now let's move on. We're going to talk about Cannes Film Festival. And we're going to talk about Killers of the Flower Moon and what the reviews are saying. 
Killers of the Flower Moon is Martin Scorsese's next film, and I've talked about this film before. It is very much like Oppenheimer. It's one of these films that I am very, very excited to see for this year. It's They're coming from filmmakers that when they have a new piece of work coming out, it is not fast food cinema. It is not you know, disposable content. It is it is very much like an event. Like I, you mark your calendar for when they have a new film coming out. It's to me, it's a very big deal. And, uh, this tells the story of, I'm going to actually read the official synopsis. Uh, well, this comes from the, from Collider, but uh, it says here, director Martin Scorsese is most often associated with classic movies about wise guys and gangsters, but with his upcoming film, Killers of the Flower Moon, the director is tackling a new genre with his first ever Western. The film, an adaptation of, of journalist David Grant's 2017 nonfiction book, Killers of the Flower Moon, The Osage Murders and the Birth of the FBI, tells the story of at least 20 murdered members of the Osage tribe in Oklahoma during 1920s Oklahoma. So it's a story that deals with, obviously, a lot of tragedy to the indigenous communities, uh, you know, white supremacy, um, greed, betrayal, things like that and these are these are the kind of films that I look forward to that that deal with very heavy subject matter but that that are told from the perspective of tr- of filmmakers that are very truthful to the material you know we, we these days we we get so many of these biopics and so many of these quote unquote true stories that are often you know, Hollywood eyes, if that's even a term, or or or, or kind of glorified in, in certain ways. Uh, but when it comes to filmmakers like Martin Scorsese and like Christopher Nolan, you can expect a a a a, a approach that's going to that's going to that's going to try and bring as as much authenticity and as much you know integrity to whatever the source material or 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 whatever the respective true story is. That's part of the reason why I'm not that excited for this new Michael Jackson biopic that's coming out. There's there's like reports that his family and his team are, are really want to have a, a close eye on the production of the film, and his like Michael Jackson's nephew is going to be playing him, and I don't even know if he's ever acted before. So that right there, that is a red flag for me. Um, but getting back to this film. Uh, it's it's finally premiered at, at Cannes Film Festival, and along with TIFF, I would say TIFF and Cannes, TIFF is the Toronto International Film Festival, but TIFF and Cannes are probably two of the biggest uh, film festivals in the world, uh, at least from a from a from a media coverage perspective, and a lot of you know a lot of films with 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 big star-studded cast often premiere at these festivals because they're like I said they get a lot of media coverage it's it's a very big deal you know there's other film festivals like Sundance that are still quite big but don't get as much attention necessarily uh and, and there's some other movies that have come out that that have already been premiered like I'm not a big Indiana Jones fan but uh, for those of you who are the new film uh Indiana Jones Dial of Destiny has come out and that apparently is not getting the best reception. I saw that there was like a five-minute standing ovation for Harrison Ford, but then afterwards I look on on Rotten Tomatoes and I look at the reviews and they're like, for the most part, pretty bad. And not to go on a side tangent, but in acknowledging that I'm not a fan of that franchise, I've, I've, I'll be honest with you, I haven't actually seen a single Indiana Jones movie, uh, but I understand that 
when you think of you know some of the great films and, and some of the great blockbusters, you you have to include uh, that franchise in that discussion. But when I saw the trailers for this movie, the the first thing that came to my mind was it just looks like processed and it just looks digital. It doesn't look. It doesn't. It doesn't feel cinematic. If 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 that's if that's kind of the best way I can put it. I know that. You know, I don't know. That, that's just how I feel. Once again, I'm acknowledging that I'm not an Indiana Jones film, uh, a film fan. I'm, I'm acknowledging that I haven't even seen the film. So for all I know, I could, I, I could love it. Uh, but yeah, for those of you who out there that are fans and that have been curious as to, you know, what critics are saying so far, it's not looking great. Uh, but on the other hand, with Killers of the Flower Moon, uh, the, the reviews are apparently. Very favorable. So let me try and pull them up here. Killers of the Flower Moon reviews. <clears throat> um, Rotten Tomatoes. Here we go. This is what we're looking for. Now, I'm not one of these people that are dependent on Rotten Tomatoes. Like, I don't check Rotten Tomatoes every time I'm considering to go see a film. Really, for me, if, if I'm on the fence about a movie, like if I really want to see a movie, I'm going to go see it. I'm not going to go check, you know, critics in, in Rotten Tomatoes. But if I'm on the fence about a film, the first couple of people I'll go to to see if they've even done a review for the film is Dan Mural and Chris Stuckman. Uh, just, just for me personally, that's sort of my Rotten Tomatoes, if you will. Um, so we see here, yeah, it's at a 97%. It's only got 29 reviews. That's because the film, you know, there's only been so many people that have seen it because it doesn't even come out till the end of the year, which is very, that's kind of shitty. I mean, you know, the film's premiering now and uh, we're not going to see it till, I, I think it comes out in like October or, or, or November, one of those two months. So I'm jealous. If any of you listening are at Cannes, I hope you're enjoying yourself. I wish I was in your position. Uh, so let's see here. Let's read a couple of these reviews. Uh, Kills of the Flower Moon is about whiteness, about the ways, it, about the ways it is a construct based on and depending on violence to maintain dominance, and how any power allocated to or enjoyed by other ethnicities is an affront and a threat to its dominion. Wow, fuck. Okay, let's read another one here. Uh, clocking in at at, cl- at a wait, what? Oh, it disappeared. On where'd it go? Oh, here it is. Clocking in at close to three and a half hours, Kills of the Flower Moon rates high in the 21st century Scorsese canon, but it asks its viewers for substantial patience. Okay, so that is a, that. That's a positive review, but that also tells me that this person here might might have a problem with the runtime. Uh, and I mean, three and a half hours is a long time for a movie. I mean, objectively. Uh, let's read a. We'll read like two more here. Um, let me look for one. Killers of the Flower Moon suggests filmmakers should keep and keep on keeping on. I'd even put my cowboy boot on the line and declare this one of the best westerns ever made, and almost certainly the best film of 2023 so far. Okay, that's a pretty that's a pretty good one. Not that I'm fishing for only good reviews. There's really only good reviews here. There's only one bad review. Let's read it. The script from Forrest Gump's Eric Roth begins to meander badly, dropping in and out of the murder narrative and ultimately saddling with us with a villain in De Niro who's not nearly villainous enough and a protagonist in DiCaprio who's a borderline moron. Okay, that's not the, that's, that's the only uh, rotten review here. Everything else is the tomato. 
Let's read like, okay, I know I said we'll do two more. We'll do two more and then we'll uh, we'll call it there for, uh, not for the episode, but for the review. So um, let me see. It's a thrilling, intimate, and powerful film that is the equal of any of the director's other hits and is his best film since Wolf of Wall Street or maybe ever. Okay. Wow, that's pretty good. Um, this comes from Robert Daniels. As are the performances, seeing DiCaprio and De Niro watch, uh, match wits allows the film to remain in a liminal space where the characters' intentions are clear yet unconfirmed, but it's Gladstones who is the clear highlight. Yes, I'm hearing a lot about her. Uh, I'm not too familiar with her, but apparently she was one of the standouts in the film. Uh, to Scorsese's credit, he does not shy away from the injustice of the story, even in the end. He's right to inform us that even when there is justice, there is still no justice for marginalized groups of people. Yeah, so that review kind of goes back to what I was saying. This is a filmmaker that is not afraid. And it did, I actually watched a, uh, a whole press conference uh, from Cannes, and, and they, were, they actually put put it up on YouTube. You can go check it out for yourself. And it's just sort of like a Q&A from the press asking uh, you know, the cast and the crew, you know, Martin Scorsese and DiCaprio and everybody else asking them about the film. And that's what DiCaprio talked about when, when he was asked about sort of his opinion on Martin Scorsese and working with him. He, he said, like, this is a filmmaker that is not afraid to tell the truth, no matter how ugly that truth may be. And I think this this review right here, I'm actually going to read it again. To Scorsese's credit, he does not shy away from the injustice of the story. Even in the end, he is right to inform us that even when there is justice, there still is no justice for marginalized groups of people. That's actually, that might be the best review I've seen because it's, it's honest. It talks about the authenticity. It talks about the integrity of the story that's being told. It's not just there to wow us or to make us escape from our reality. Uh, and it's, 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 it's history that... that that a lot of people are, might not be familiar with, so this is going. This, this can inform a lot of us. Um, so that that's very exciting. So yeah, Kills of the Flower Moon. Are you excited for this film? This is another. This is another one of these films that you know it's it's very rare, not only in the subject matter but the filmmaker and, and the talent behind it. Uh, I am very much looking forward to it, and uh, let me know if you are as well. So let's move on to the next topic here. So to cap off the episode, I thought it would be fun to look ahead for the rest of the year because we're almost halfway through, and uh, I'm gonna give you, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you the five films that I'm most and most excited to see that are coming out for the remainder of the year. Now there's still a lot of films to to come out, um, but I'm gonna give you five here uh, based off my excitement. So at number five. Probably go. I'm just looking at the schedule here for the rest of the year, and uh, you know, number five is probably going to be Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. Now, I'm I, I I've talked about this before. I'm not the biggest fan of of, of animated films, and uh, it's it's just not my favorite kind of content to consume. Um, but but I was a big fan of the first Spider-Man uh, across the Spider or into the Spider Verse, so I'm excited to see what they do with this one. And there's apparently like 300 something variants of Spider-Mans that we're gonna see, so that's pretty exciting. Uh, number four is uh, where is it here? Is Insidious: The Red Door? Now I will admit this new Insidious, the trailer did not hook me. 
but with the original family returning from the first film, and even the actor who played the father, Patrick Wilson, is stepping behind the camera to direct this film, there is... There's promise, there's potential. Will they feed off nostalgia, and will they probably just bring back the 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 demon from the first film to scare audiences again? They might do that, but almost from a guilty pleasure perspective, I'm just excited to see this film. Number three, uh, I'm gonna have to go with. Let me see what else is coming out here. What else is coming out? Hmm, the Killer, The Killer, directed by David Fincher. Uh, this, David Fincher is among that pool of filmmakers with Martin Scorsese, with you know Christopher Nolan, that whatever, whatever film he makes, there is a level of expectation that you don't normally have with any other filmmaker. And, you, and it's, it's, the bar is very high, but they're, they're usually able to exceed it. So that is his next film that's going to be coming out through Netflix. I'm not sure if Netflix is going to give it a theatrical release. They seem to be stubborn on that. Uh, a lot of you know studios, you know, streamings, streaming, uh, streaming studio, excuse me, and theaters are now starting to work together because they understand that having a film released theatrically and then having it like a month and a half later go onto a streaming service, if it if the film is successful theatrically, it will gain a lot of awareness, and then when that film moves to the streaming platforms, audiences are going to want to see it again, or maybe the word of mouth will pick up, and then people that didn't see it theatrically are going to say, well, okay, well, now I want to watch it, it's not in theaters, okay, where can I see it? oh, Apple TV, oh, Netflix, so on and so forth, but Netflix has kissed <laughs> this idea, or or um, or this business model, but they haven't fully committed to it. The, the biggest commitment they've shown to it, or, or or if there's a film I could pick, was probably Glass Onion, but they only gave that film like a one-week release. You look at Amazon, they gave like the full theatrical release. They gave like a month and a half to air. I think you could still see air, uh, at least where I am in Canada. There's, there's select theaters that are still playing air, but I know it's on... Uh, Amazon Prime now, but we're seeing that with Apple TV. Apple TV is investing a lot of money and resources into their theatrical films. They have Napoleon coming out. Uh, Napoleon would be on my list if we had a trailer or if it's even confirmed to to uh, to be coming out this year because I don't I don't even know if it is. Um, but that film is going to get a very similar treatment to Killers of the Flower Moon. Killers of the Flower Moon is going to release theatrically through I think Paramount. But then afterwards, after probably, once again, like a month and a half, it's going to go to Apple TV and be an exclusive film for there. So I think that's probably the best compromise and the best the uh, the best thing for both studios, to be honest with you, for, for, for both sides of the pond, if you will. Uh, but it seems like Netflix is very stubborn and they're, they're kind of, you know, keeping their feet down and, and sticking to this, you know, streaming, streaming only. And, you know, hey... If that's what they want to do, I guess. So I'm not too sure if they're gonna they're gonna give uh, the killer that that theatrical treatment. I don't think Mank got it, which was uh, which was David Fincher's last film with Netflix, which I actually like. That that film has grown on me a lot. Didn't really love it my first viewing. I respected it. I respected the 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 authorship behind it and the voice. Uh, and, and I've talked about it before. I am a sucker for movies that are about the history of Hollywood 
and uh, so I could I could appreciate it in those regards. But as as a story, as a complete, you know, from beginning to end, I didn't love it on my first viewing. But I have it has grown on me a lot since. Uh, but yeah, so number three would be uh, the killer which is starring Michael Fassbender, once again directed by David Fincher. Number two would be Killers of the Flower Moon, uh, which I we just talked about, so I'm not going to get all into that again. And number one, I think it's pretty obvious, uh, would be would be Oppenheimer. You know what, though? I actually just forgot, and I'm not even doing this for the memes. I'm going to have to take out Spider-Man, and I'm going to have to slip in Barbie. I totally forgot about Barbie. And... For all the jokes and for all the memes that are surrounding this film, it actually looks like it's going to be pretty good. And it's simply because of the talent, uh, obviously in front of the camera, but mostly my excitement is tied to the filmmakers. And you have Noah Baumbach and Greta Gerwig who co-wrote the film, uh, and then you have Greta Gerwig directing the film, and she's one of my favorite filmmakers working today. So if it wasn't for her, you know, I, I might check it out out of morbid curiosity, but I wouldn't have actually thought about it thought about it potentially being a very good compelling film with maybe even something to say I know it looks lighthearted but I I feel like like I said with these filmmakers behind it there there's a good possibility that there could be some kind of underlying message behind a film like this I don't know that's maybe I'm just taking it too serious who knows so yeah, that would be my list. Number five, I'm going to go Barbie. I'm sorry, I'm going to have to kick Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse off the list. Number four, uh, I'm going to go uh, The Killer. Uh, number three, um, oh wait, actually, no, I've only named four films. Wait, hold on, hold on. I I'm confusing myself. Okay, so I got Barbie. That's one. Uh, I have Killer, Kills with Fleming, Oppenheimer. Okay, I, I guess I can keep... I guess I can keep Spider-Verse. I guess I can't count today. I woke up. My brain doesn't work. Um, so, yeah. So, I guess number five. So, across the Spider-Verse, that's going to stay on there. Uh, that's going to be five. Four is going to be Barbie. Three is going to be The Killer. Two uh, is going to be Killers of the Flower Moon. Uh, and then number one is going to be Oppenheimer. Let me know what your top five most anticipated list for this second half of 2023 is. Um Working on getting these episodes up on YouTube. Uh, I'm just trying to figure out my setup so you guys don't have to just watch me uh, talk in front of a white wall. I think that's pretty monotonous and boring. I know I wouldn't want to watch that. Uh, so I'm working on that and I'm also working on some other things. I have a short film that I'm going to be hopefully shooting before the end of this year. Uh, touching up the script right now, working with my director. So that is, uh, that's going to be coming out and we're very excited for that. Uh, more content to come next podcast is going to be on Wednesday. I think every Wednesday podcast, I'm going to do the, what have I watched lately and talk about, you know, what I've watched. Okay, guys, girls, everyone, that's it. Thank you for stopping by. Thank you for watching. If you stuck around this long, thank you very much. Have a great rest of your weekend and I'll see you on the next one.